Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. And really, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. That was high praise. What a great God that we serve. And it's wonderful to sing His praises together with you. My heart is elevated. It really is. We come to the time in our service where we have the high point of our worship. The high point of our worship. This is our opportunity to read from God's Word. This is our opportunity to have our minds renewed by God's Word, have our affections stirred by God's Spirit, have our lives conformed toward the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. This is a high point of worship. This is a spiritual activity that we are about to engage in. God's Word applied to His people's lives. And so with that in mind, it's right that we begin by buying our heads and our hearts before Him. Let us pray. Our Father God in heaven, Your word says that men are like grass and their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This morning, Lord God, our desire is to stand on your word. It is faithful and true. It is sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. Teach us, Lord God, this morning, we pray. Stir our hearts. Grant us heaven's affections. Might we desire Jesus more and more. Might our hearts desire to walk according to his word and according to your will, that you might be glorified in the lives of your saints, we pray. Transform us, Lord God. Transform this people, yeah, that we might be set apart from the people around us, that we might be carved apart for heaven's glory. Move in us this day, we pray. In the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we continue a short series on the topic of giving. A short series on the topic of giving. If you want to teach on giving in the life of a church like ours, you need to go to a cornerstone passage on giving. And that cornerstone passage can be found in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. It is an amazingly practical, uh, an amazingly personal section of God's Word that teaches on the topic of giving. You can find 2 Corinthians in your own Bibles in the New Testament. First the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the book of Acts and Romans. And what comes after 1 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians, that's right. That's what you're looking for. 
It's on page 1,791 of my Bible, but that's not going to help you. (laughs) I'm going to read from verse 1, although this morning I'm only going to teach from verse 10 to verse 15. So we'll read up until verse 15. I'm only going to teach from verse 10 to 15, but in case you weren't here last week, I want you to have some of the context of what we covered last week so that you have some understanding of uh, what Paul is teaching the Corinthian church and through them us this morning. Friends, as many of you are able, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Please rise. Friends, hear the word of God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Just so far in the reading of God's word, may he be praised. Amen. Please be seated. Why giving? If you were here last week, you would have heard that the Bible contains roughly 500 verses on prayer and faith. But it contains well over 2,000 verses that relate to money. God has plenty to say about giving. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, And Luke, one in every six verses relates to money. And almost 40% of Jesus Christ's parables use money to convey biblical truth. God has plenty to say 
about money. And so, from time to time, it is appropriate for your pastor to address the topic. But it's also necessary for your pastor to address and to talk about giving. Because there's so much rubbish taught about giving in our world today. Oral Roberts was a televangelist and faith healer. He told his flock in 1987 that God would call him home if he didn't raise $8 million to buy a new home for himself. He did the calculation this morning. The rand was at 15 rand and 76 cents to the dollar, which means that Oral Roberts' home would have cost $126,682,688 rand. That's almost as much as in Kantler. <laughs> you might say, no one would fall for that junk. But you'd be wrong. Prosperity preachers are the new Christian superstars. They pack out stadiums every single Sunday. The author of Your Best Life Now, Joel Alstein's weekly Sunday service attendance, is roughly 45,000 souls. He wrote to his flock, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny that he has laid out for us. Now, as crass as that might sound in your ear, and it should sound crass, his prosperity gospel is gentler than Benny Hinn and T.D. Jakes and Krevler Dollar. Gentler than Mboro and Major One. It is necessary for your pastor to talk about giving because there is so much rubbish spoken about giving every single Sunday in pulpits just down the road from here. Now the place to start talking about giving is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, although giving is spoken about the whole way through God's word. But in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul does address this topic of giving in personal and practical terms. And we began last week to unpack these two verses with chapter 8, verse 1 to 9. Now, you might remember if you were here, if you weren't, this is so that you know what's going on in those uh, few verses, that Paul's concern is about collecting money from the Gentile churches for the church in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church, friends, is dirt poor, partly because those who were saved on the day of Pentecost were pilgrims to Jerusalem. They didn't live there. They didn't ply out their livelihoods there. They got saved there and they stayed there, and so they had no way of making money there, sustaining themselves there. They were also poor because persecution had begun in the city of Jerusalem. And they were poor, a third reason, um, because there had been a worldwide famine which had devastated the whole Roman Empire. And so Paul commended 
the Macedonian church in verse 1 to 5, that the grace of God had been given to them because in their severe affliction and their joy and their extreme poverty had overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Paul then goes on from verse 6 to verse 8 to address the Corinthian church. And he calls on them who excel in everything to excel in this act of grace also. Thirdly, this was in verse 9, Paul pointed to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. He speaks about grace four times in those first nine verses. Uh, Firstly, he talks about the grace of God to the Macedonian church. Then the act of grace that he's calling the Corinthians to observe, and finally the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is all about the grace of giving. This morning... We're going to shift gears because Paul shifts gears in verse 10 to verse 15. And he begins to address the benefits of giving. The benefits of giving. Let me tell you what they are right up front so that you know what we're looking at this morning. The first benefit of giving is found in verse 10. He's going to address the benefit of giving in verse 10. And then the first benefit, sorry, is found in verse 11. And it's that giving fulfills our heart's desire. Giving fulfills our heart's desire. Secondly, he's going to say that giving can be acceptable before God. Giving can be acceptable before God in verse 12. Thirdly, giving encourages interdependence. Giving encourages interdependence from verse 13 to verse 15. So let's start off by Uh, addressing the benefits of giving in verse 10. What are the benefits of heartfelt giving? Read verse 10 in your own Bibles together with me, please. Paul says, and in this matter, I give my judgment, for this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Let me read that again so we've got it firmly in our heads. And in this matter, I give my judgment for this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Firstly, he says this matter. What matter is he talking about? The giving to the Jerusalem churches. The grace of God which had been given to the Macedonians, who had begged for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's the matter that he has been addressing up until now. As the grace of God was a benefit to the Macedonian church, so Paul says that this benefits the Corinthian church. Giving is for their good. Giving is to their advantage. Friends, it's always been so. We can look in so many passages of Scripture where the correlation, the relationship between giving and benefit is made. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ, for instance, in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his 
reward. Corinthian church, are you adding to your reward? Luke chapter 6 verse 38. Jesus again says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Corinthian church, what will be given to you? Uh, To the Philippians, Paul, having received a gift from them, says in chapter 4, verse 17, I don't seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Corinthian church, how's your spiritual credit score? In the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18 and 19, Paul says to his son Timothy, and he's talking here about the wealthy. He says, they are to good do, let me try that again. They are to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Corinthian church, are you storing up treasure in heaven? Maybe to tail off the the end of God's word, the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, uh, almost in closing words, verse 12, Jesus again says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, my reward with me, to repay each one for what he has done. What will Christ be bringing for you, Corinthian church? Paul says in verse 10, in this matter, I give my judgment for this benefits you. There are benefits to heartfelt giving. Now, he addresses the elephant in the room for the Corinthian church. He says, a year ago started. They started giving a year ago. They haven't finished the giving yet. Good intentions are a poor substitute for good deeds. Benjamin Franklin said, don't put off today, uh, don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Research says that 91% of the people abandon their New Year's resolutions by February. The devil will let you resolve as much as you like. In fact, the more, the better, as long as you never carry it out. William Barclay says, the tragedy of life so often is not that we have no high impulses, but that we fail to turn them into actions. Friends, giving is a work. It's a work that is to be done. Not an impulse which we have and then conveniently forget. Paul says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Giving is an act of grace. But Paul, in verse 10, is as concerned about the heart of giving as he is about the act of giving. Paul is reminding the Corinthian church that they were like the Macedonians in their heart a year ago when they decided to give. 
when they committed to give. Now Paul says, finish the task because there are benefits to giving. And the question is, what are the benefits to giving that Paul is talking about? And the first one is this. Giving fulfills that heart's desire, verse 11. Giving fulfills that heart's desire. Read verse 11 with me. So now finish doing it as well. So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Should I read that again so that we've got it firm in our heads? So now finish doing it as well. So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. God gave to the Macedonians an opportunity to take part in the relief of the saints. I imagine that God has given you grace to partner with him also. Have you made a commitment to God? Maybe a commitment to support an intern. Maybe a commitment to ease the plight of a family within this local church. Maybe a commitment to regularly give at Central via EFT. Do you have a desire to give? Are you ready to start giving? Then don't delay. Don't delay. The Corinthians, friends, were amongst the first of the Gentile churches to pledge to give. And they were amongst the first of the Gentile uh, churches to fizzle out in their giving. Procrastination? Maybe. A change in heart priority? Definitely. I see this all the time. A new visitor comes into the church and they are here every single Sunday until they are not. A member of the church begins to read through God's word and they read through diligently every single day until they stop. A band member attends every single uh, audition and practice that they possibly can until they stop. It is important to start right, but it is imperative to end well. That's Paul's point here. He says, finish doing it as well. Finish doing it as well. Friends, finish well. Corinthians, it is time to put your money where your mouth was. It's time to put your money where your heart was last year. Little wonder our affections for spiritual things wax and wane. It's not God who grows cold. But us, we make promises to him all the time and then fail to fulfill them. Can you imagine us treating our other financial obligations in this way? Our bond, our car payment, our Edgar's account? We'd end up in court. Financial laxness is not tolerated in the world And there is a price to be paid for spiritual laxness as well. Don't procrastinate. Stopping the obligations of your heart is a sin. Don't put them on hold. Stop making excuses. 
Now, to finish well in this life and in this particular area of giving, you will need to put some stewardship in place, I have no doubt. Uh, This morning and last night, I was jotting down a couple of them and looking for corresponding proverbs uh, that fulfill the point. You will need to work. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 to 8 says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. If you are to be a faithful, God-glorifying giver, you are to work, and you have to work hard. It's one of the means that God has given us that we might give. But not only that, you're to budget. Proverbs 21 verse 5 says it this way, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who's hasty comes only to poverty. You're not going to be a good giver if you're not intentionally budgeting to give, you to save as well. Proverbs 22 verse 7 says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. If you are borrowed and lent to the hilt, you will not be able to give a cent because you will owe money to everyone else and never pay money to God. But lastly, friends, we are to give. A year before, Uh, The Apostle Paul had sent his son Titus to the church in Corinth, and he had sent him with a letter. It was one of a number of letters that went to the church in Corinth. With this letter, we have the first letter of the Corinthians, and in chapter 16, verse 2, we read this. On the first day of the week, in relation to this collection for the people in Jerusalem, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. We're to give. We're to give joyfully. We're to give sacrificially. We're to give to glorify God in our lives and with our treasure. But there are benefits of giving. And the first one is in verse 11. It fulfills the desire of our heart. For the Corinthians, it was a desire that had been placed in their heart a year before that would only come to fruition when they completed and finished the task. Secondly, giving can be acceptable before God. We read that in verse 12. Read verse 12 together with me in your own Bibles. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Can I read that again? If the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. That word readiness, readiness, means eagerness. It means a predisposed disposition. It means to be prompt. It means to have a willing spirit, a predisposed disposition of mind. It conveys the idea of rushing forward. The Macedonian church was ready when they overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The Macedonian church was ready when they gave according to their means. The Macedonian church was ready when they gave beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief for the saints. Is your heart ready? 
Because it's readiness that God accepts. Readiness of heart is your act of spiritual worship. It's not about how much money you put in the plate. It's the heart from where that money comes from that matters to God. He sees your heart. Are you ready? Let me give you two examples of people who had readiness of heart. The first is the widow. You know the story well from Luke 21, verse 1 to 4. Jesus is in the temple, and I have no doubt he's hearing the coins of wealthy men drop into the collection box. He looks up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and then he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. Can you imagine the confusion of his disciples as he addressed this widow's picture? Can you imagine the irritation of the Pharisees as Jesus spoke these words? Can you imagine the reddened faces of the rich as Jesus said, truly I tell you this poor widow has put in more than all of them? For they all contributed in their abundance. But friends, she was ready. She, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Let me give you another example. The widow represents a person who is very poor. In fact, the amount of money that she put into the offering plate, uh, those two small copper coins, one of those copper coins is worth one sixty-fourth of what is called a denarius. The next story has a denarius in it. It's the story of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus Christ. This story can be found in John chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. Uh, It's six days before the Passover. Jesus is in a town called Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. It's where his friend uh, Lazarus uh, lives, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so there's a dinner that gets put on for him there. And Martha is serving as Martha does. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. And she anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with a fragrant perfume. The conflict comes in because Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray Jesus, says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he cared at all about the poor, but because he did not have a ready heart, but because he was a thief and he had charge over the money bags and he used to help himself to whatever was put in there. Here's the high point of the story. Jesus said, leave her alone. She has a ready heart. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. The the widow's might on the one side, one sixty-fourth of a denarii. Mary's anointing oil on the other side, 300 denarii. Uh, This morning or last night, I, I sat with the calculator and worked out. Uh, that the one gift was 19,200 times of more value than the other gift. 
that it wasn't the quantity that caused Jesus to note them. It was the quality of the gift, the readiness of heart that made the gifts acceptable to the Lord. Is your heart ready? It says in verse 12, for the readiness is there, if it is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, out of what you have. Friends, we give in proportion to what we have. When you think of proportional giving, your mind might go straight to tithing. And you've probably heard that in churches a lot, 10%. But don't jump there too quickly. I want to define for you what biblical tithing is. And it might surprise you to learn that there's more than one tithe in the Old Testament. The first tithe is the Levitical tithe or the sacred tithe. You can write this down and go and check this out uh, later on this afternoon and talk about it over lunch. Numbers 18 verse 21 and 24 speak about it. This one we can trace all the way back to Abraham who tithed to Melchizedek, king of Salem, a priest of God most high. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 14. The second tithe, the second 10% is the tithe of feasts. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 27. This tithe was dedicated to the good of the man and to his family for their religious observations and their religious celebrations. The third tithe is for the poor. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29. This one was only to be given once every third year and it was designated for the Levite, for the foreigner, for the fatherless, and for the widow, three tithes, one for God, one for your own spiritual and physical welfare, and one for your neighbor's need. Do the math. That's 10% plus 10% plus a third of 10%. So tithing is actually around 23 to 24% of your income, excluding some of the other taxes that Old Testament believers were responsible for. Now, if you've been giving 10% and calling it a tithe, my intention isn't to unsettle you. I'm also not calling on you to give more. <laughs> you need to go from 10% to 23%, 24%. I'm also not suggesting that you give less. The point that I'm trying to make here is that New Testament teaching regarding the church and tithing can't be applied exactly the same way as it was in the Old Testament. In fact, the word tithe isn't even commanded to New Testament saints at all. Now you wonder, doesn't it leave a gap? How do we keep the lights on? And how do we hire pastors? Proportional giving. Proportional giving. Paul's intent here isn't to set a number in your head that you can peg your self-righteousness on. Rather, believers are encouraged to remember the Old Testament proportional giving 
and now think of proportional giving in terms of what God has provided them with in the New Testament. And the question is, is your heart ready for this? This isn't about how wealthy you are or how poor you are. The word proportion frees the wealthy man to give plenty and the poor man to give out of what he has. The poor man who gives nothing and the rich man who gives a part but not a proportion are in the same boat. You don't have a money problem, you have a heart problem. But friends, giving is to your advantage. So give with one qualification. Do not give according to what you don't have. In other words, do what you can now without hesitation, but don't worry about what you can't do. Glorify God as you give proportionately to what he has given you. Friends, there are benefits to giving. And the first benefit is that giving fulfills our heart's desire, verse 11. The second benefit is that giving can be acceptable, sacrificed before God, verse 12. And the third is that giving encourages interdependence, verse 13, 14, and 15. I hope you're learning. I certainly learned as I went through this text. Verse 13. Anna was cut to the heart as I went through this text and considered the practical applications even in my own life. Verse 13 says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's my practice to read it twice, because I really want you to see God's word, not just what I have to say. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that, they may be, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul's point here is this isn't about you sweating while others loaf. This isn't some kind of social relief grant paid to the Jerusalem church so that they could stay on the dole while the Corinthians put their shoulders to the grindstone. No, everybody knew that there was a genuine need in the saints in Jerusalem, that they were in abject poverty, that they were in desperation, and that they needed relief. But Paul, at the same time, doesn't want this to be a burden on the Corinthian church. Giving isn't to be a burden. Giving is meant to be a joy. We are meant to enjoy our finances, and we are meant to enjoy giving our finances to God's work. This is a privilege. This is a delight. And as such, we are to make sure that we don't neglect our family as we go about giving. This isn't about robbing from Peter in order to pay Paul. Calvin said it this way. This teaching is needed to refute fanatics who think that you have done nothing unless you strip yourself completely and put everything into a common fund. Now, there are two possible 
ways that we could understand the word fairness at the end of verse 13 and verse 14. The first is that Paul is suggesting to the Corinthians that life has a strange way of evening things up. Corinthians, give to the church in Jerusalem today. Tomorrow, you may find you are the ones in need and receiving help from them. I don't think that that's what Paul is saying. I think, and it's more probable, that this relates to reciprocity. Now, reciprocity is a crazy word. I don't know if there's anyone from an embassy uh, here today, but this, recip- this word reciprocity I learned uh, because I wrote an IT system back in the day that governed the relationship between countries. I, I spent a long time reading the Geneva Convention, and when one country sends emb- uh, uh, embassies, sends ambassadors or a dip- diplomatic staff to another country, and they establish an embassy in that country, there is a reciprocity Reciprocity agreement between the two countries. Let me give you an example. I I used this at the Hill, so I'll use it here. It's not the greatest example. But for example, if you are a South African ambassador or member of a diplomatic team and you go to the United States, the reciprocity agreement might say you can take six crates of Amarula with you. Although I imagine Amarula would spoil. (laughs) Not, Not the greatest example. Six crates of Amarula with you. The ambassador that comes from the United States, the reciprocity agreement might say you can bring six crates of, I'm not great when it comes to alcohol, so I really struggled at the hill, but I think Southern Comfort is from the Southern States of America. You can bring that into the country with you. The idea is that there's agreement which sets up, you give this and we give that. I think that's what Paul has in mind here, that this relates to reciprocity. Paul is suggesting to the Corinthians that they need to hold up their side of the bargain. And you might say, but hang on, wait a minute. The Corinthians are the one that are going to give the money in the Jerusalem church. They have nothing. What's reciprocal about that? But keep in mind, number one, the Corinthians haven't actually given any money yet. And number two, the Jerusalem church has been serving the worldwide church for years. The 12 apostles have been housed there. The center of the first gospel accounts is from there. They'd borne the brunt of the Jewish persecution in there. Uh, They had hosted the first uh, ecumenical council there. They had recognized the Greek saints as full Christians there and had written letters to confirm their decision from there. The Corinthians owed the Jerusalem church much. And so the point that Paul is trying to make is that our giving, in part, enables us to have interdependent relationships with churches around us, within the body of Christ. And friends, this makes much sense, because we alone are not the body, not the way a body works, right? We might be a finger, but what's a finger without a hand and without an arm and without being attached to the body and without being attached to the head that is Christ? We are members of a wider Christian body, the universal church of God. And our giving, in part, connects us to that. That's why there are missionaries specified as line items in our annual budget. Because we are connected to the body. And when we hear of a part of the body which is in pain, or a country that is in need, it doesn't have resources or missionaries, then our attachment to that body is by financially giving 
that God's kingdom might be established, giving his part of our partnership with God and his capital K for kingdom activities. As we give, keep in mind that it's God who has provided. That's the point of the quote, which comes from Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus chapter 16, Pastor Charles has just been preaching through it. You might remember that God's people had begun to grumble against God and against Moses and said, we remember the meat pots back in Egypt, and we want to go back there. In response, Moses had said, you will now see the glory of God, and he will provide. And he did. He provided quail, and he provided manna that they might eat. The rules around the collection of manna is that each man went out, some collected more, some collected less. But as they came back and they divided amongst themselves, maybe a person was ill and couldn't go out and collect, as they divided amongst themselves, God had provided exactly what they needed. And on the sixth day, he, div- he, he provided double so that they could rest on the seventh. The point here is that he will take care of our needs because God, our Father, is able. He is faithful. He is good. He is in control and he is sovereign. We give because he has given to us so abundantly. What are the benefits of giving? Well, giving fulfills our heart's desire. Giving can be acceptable. Giving encourages interdependence. What is the application of this message? It's simple, believer. We're to give. We're to give joyfully. We're to give generously like the Macedonian church. We're to give sacrificially like our Lord Jesus Christ gave. And we're to give intentionally like the Corinthians were called upon to give. But there's application for those of you who have not yet placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior as well. And the application isn't give. The application is receive. Friends, this kind of giving is only intended to flow out of hearts that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior that are filled with the Holy Spirit, hearts that are ready. If you do not know Jesus, your heart is not ready to give yet. Please don't. For you, you need to receive. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. That's an offer to you today. An offer to you is the greatest gift that was ever given. Jesus Christ, the son of God. You can read about this gift In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he made himself low that through his lowliness you might receive riches. The riches that it is talking about is spiritual riches, salvation that comes only through the person of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He died in your place. He absorbed the wrath of God that you might be forgiven. And on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the grave because the payment which he had made to the Father on your behalf was acceptable. Friends, the call on your life is not to give. Your call on your life is to receive. And you do that by confessing your sins, repenting. Turn away from your love for this world, from your love for the things of this world, and turn yourself to the cross of Christ. Cast yourself on him and you will live. Believe upon him and you will live. Call on the name of the Lord and you will live. Believe 
that God raised him from the dead and you will live. Receive. And do it at once. Do not delay. Do not let this moment of salvation pass you by. If you need to speak to someone about Jesus, if you need to speak to someone about this glorious Savior, please speak to Jabu. His hand is being waved right in the front right now. Or come and speak to me or speak to any of the elders. Their hands are going up right now. Come and speak to us that we can talk to you about the life-giving gift that the Father has sent into this world that you might be saved by. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, it's appropriate that we talk about giving and it's necessary that we talk about giving because even in our giving, we have a picture of the great gift which you have given to the world. Help us reflect something of your character and your nature as we give ourselves. Transform our lives, Lord God. Help us be proportional givers which give out of the abundance that we have received. Give us joy as we go about that. Help us be sacrificial. Help us, Lord God, be intentional. Help us, Lord God, be generous that your name might be glorified in our lives. And Father, even now, for those who have not yet placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, might the scales fall from their eyes and might they see the gift of God, our righteousness. This I ask in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.